Good morning. If you have your Bible with you, you're welcome to open to John chapter 12. And we'll look at verses 12 to 19. If you don't have a Bible, then we have it printed in your worship folder so that you can follow along as we look at this passage this morning. And I will read it in just a second. Uh, I want to give you just a brief introduction of why we're looking at this passage and that today is Palm Sunday, which is a day the church has traditionally celebrated this event that we're about to read about in John of when Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem and was received, albeit temporarily, as the king of the Jewish people with a lot of furor. And we don't know exactly when this happened um, in, at the span of Jesus' ministry, but we celebrate this the week before Easter, knowing the full story that it caused such a stir that it angered the religious leaders so much that by doing this, by sitting on this donkey, then it ended up sealing Jesus' fate, and that this ended up being actually a march towards his death um, rather than a march towards a universal favor and excitement. Um, so we're going to, this is one of the few passages that's found in all four Gospels, and we're going to look at this one in John, which is a very interesting transition between Jesus' ministry towards a time when he is actually preparing his disciples for his departure and for his death. So let's read together. John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Let me pray for us briefly before we start. Your Father, we open your word and we look at it together, acknowledging that we are dependent on your spirit to work, to teach us and to convict us and to turn our eyes towards Jesus. And we ask... um, from a humble position this morning, that you would do that, that you would use your word in the lives of all of us here in this room. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think this is a story of a situation that happened a long, long time ago, but I think it illustrates for us a phenomenon that is very familiar with us even in our time now, uh, which I'm sure you all are aware of, and that's this. What we hope for ends up coloring what we actually see. When we really desire something and we really expect something to come out, come about, and we're looking for something, it actually has an impact on how we view the world around us. We tend to view it through the lens of that hope. Now, it's such a common scenario. It was a little bit of a hard time to, uh, I had a little bit of a hard time finding a way to illustrate this, but this might, maybe this will land with you. I remember... I went to a very small high school, very few people, and the pride 
of the high school was the boys, high school boys basketball team. We were maybe the least talented team in the conference. We were mostly short, but due to hard work and good coaching, we always punched above our weight and ended up finishing usually about in the middle of the conference, despite our diminutive size. But we always longed to win, and we would always look after the players on the other teams that we were playing against that were much bigger and more talented. But one summer, we got wind that a new guy was coming to school who was very tall. He was probably like 6'6 or something, which is very tall to us. And he played basketball. And so as soon as we heard this news on these two things, tall guy plays basketball coming to us, then we start celebrating because we think finally the player that we have always wanted to come is here and we're finally going to win. So our expectation ran away with us and ended up coloring what we saw. And what ended up came about is the guy showed up and he was very tall and he did play basketball. He wasn't half bad. The thing was, he just really wasn't all that into basketball. Like, he would play, but he wasn't all that committed to it. He was more interested in actually doing Christian ministry than he was playing basketball. He was a good student. He really liked taking care of people. And so his energy and his time was devoted, devoted elsewhere. He had a different purpose in coming. And so he played, and nothing really changed in our team. We ended up finishing about the same place we always finished. But you see, what we hoped for ended up coloring what we saw and what we expected. Uh, and you see the same thing if you've ever been on a date with somebody and you really, really like them a lot and they agree to go on a second date with you, then you think, this person is really into me. But it's more because you're really into this person more so than you know, what their purposes might be. What we hope for ends up giving us lenses that ends up coloring what we see. I think when we zoom out, As Jesus, in this story, rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, he is coming with this reality. That there are a lot of people around him with a lot of different expectations of who he is and what he's about. And the things that they hoped for had a drastic influence on who they saw Jesus to be and what he came to do. I think even though this story was written a long time ago, that this is the same world that we live in now, And who Jesus really was and was claiming to be is the same claim on us and who we are in our time. The same situations these characters face in here are the same situations that you and I face every day in a lot of ways. And so I think what we can do is we can jump into this story and we can participate with it. And we can go on a little bit of a journey here. And what Jesus is going to do just through his actions is that he is going to actually give us something new to hope for. And in having something new to hope for is going to give us a different lens on how we can even view our lives and what we face every day here. And we're going to do this by going on a little bit of a journey. It'll be a four-stage journey. We're going to look at, with the characters, expectation first, and second, disappointment, and third, resolution, and then fourth, power. Say it one more time. Expectation disappointment, resolution, and power. So let's jump in and let's look at expectation first. Everything in the story starts with expectation. 
Every character in this story is coming to Jesus with particular set of expectations that his actions here ignites. Let's look at this crowd first. This is a very large crowd and who had gathered to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So there are way more people in Jerusalem receiving Jesus now than there ordinarily would have been in Jerusalem. There's a lot of excitement. They're here for the feast of Passover and they are receiving him into the city. And they tell us right off the bat in verse 13 what it is that they're actually expecting. Verse 13 says this, he says, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If we stop there, this would have been a common greeting that pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem towards Passover would have used to greet each other. But they add something on the end of it that they wouldn't say to most people. They say, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And they lay out palm branches. And this is telling us that the crowd is expecting that Jesus is the long-anticipated king that has been promised throughout their history that is actually going to change their circumstances. He is going to take them from a place of oppression and restore them to a place of prosperity. In order to understand this, we've got to know a little bit about Israel's history. Their history has been up and down. And in the very beginning, their very identity as a people is that they are supposed to be special. As a bright light. <laughs> um, they were promised to Abraham, their very first patriarch, that they were going to be a nation that was going to have a unique relationship with God. They were going to be abundantly blessed by God. And through them, they were actually going to extend God's blessing to other nations. So they were going to be blessed and they also were going to be very important in God's story. But throughout the history, it went up and down and up and down. And the full extent of this never came about. They rebelled against God and then they would come back and they would be restored. They would have great high times, such as when they were led out of Egypt. They were redeemed from slavery and then they complained in the wilderness. And then they had a kingdom with the great King Solomon who was wise with tons of wealth that even the Queen of Sheba came to see him to marvel at how great God was because of how great he had dealt with this nation. And then they rebelled against God and they were kicked out. But in the midst of the darkness, there was always this promise that God was going to send a king to them at some time in the future that was going to make everything right again. It was going to make them important was going to defeat Israel's enemies, was going to bring universal peace. And then this nation, who is continuously occupied by other nations, poor circumstances, was going to have the tables flipped. They were going to be the important nation that they were supposed to be again. Then this guy, Jesus, comes on the scene and he starts doing some funny things, saying some funny things. People get curious that this might be the Savior we're looking for. One chapter before this, though, he does something that ended up sealing the deal. His friend Lazarus died, and he goes to Lazarus and raises him from the dead. When Jesus does this, he knows that this is not going to be just another miracle like the others, and that this one is going to be so drastic that nobody can ignore it. And that he is going to be, there's going to be so much excitement and expectation around him to fix the circumstances of the Jewish people, that the religious leaders will be so angry that they're going to kill him. 
But Jesus does it anyway. He raises Lazarus, and because of that, the crowd, with their expectation of a relief in their circumstances, they see it and say, this has to be it. This has to be the guy who's going to come. He's going to throw, overthrow Rome. He's going to lead us to victory. All of our enemies will defeat it. And all of our circumstances are going to be the way that they should be. So they view Jesus through their expectations. I think the same can be said with the Pharisees. You notice them at the end that in the last verse 19 here, there's this, we see in their exasperation that they also came to Jesus with expectations. They had some of the same expectations for the same type of Messiah, but in their own unique way, they were the teachers of the law and they were the people who were in power in the religious sense. And so they expected a Messiah who was going to come on their terms, a king that was going to look like the one that they said was going to be in their own authoritative reading of Scripture. And he's going to be the one who is going to honor this special group of people, the Pharisees, for their keeping of the law. This is what they were expecting. And Jesus comes on the scene, and he's not exactly doing this, but exactly but challenging their authority. And they say, this is not what I expected, can't be this guy. The one who's coming is going to put me in a high position of honor, and it's going to be the type of person that I think that is going to be. And we see the disciples here, they also come with their own expectations. We see in verse 16 that they didn't fully understand what was going on with Jesus here. And we can trace back through the story of all the Gospels how the disciples expected as Jesus in a ring to be included, to be put at his right hand, to be understand what he's doing, to be at a very special place in a special relationship with Jesus. All of these parties are approaching Jesus with a set of expectations, and all of them view Jesus through the expectations that they have for him. Now, we're in a little bit of a different time, but I, the same is true for every one of us when we really think about it. We all have a set of expectations for life that we bring with us when we approach Jesus. I think almost every human being in the world acknowledges that there's something not right, that there's suffering, there's abuse of power, abuses in all kinds of ways, there's tragedy, we're tired of dealing with the selfishness of other people, things aren't right, and we all want a solution. But we all, depending on what we want, you know, some of us, we have a lot of great pain and suffering in our lives, and We see what we really need for life to go well is we need somebody who's going to take away my pain and take away my suffering and bring universal healing. That's not a bad thing, and that's a good thing. But that is a particular lens of expectation that when Jesus comes, that we approach Jesus through. And if we expect, we look at Jesus positively, we might expect that he is the one, his purpose is to change our circumstances and to take our own pain away. Some of us want to be important like the Pharisees. We want a a Savior who is going to fit the mold of how we think that the world should be fixed. And unless it fits that particular mold, unless it keeps us in a position of power um, and authority, he matches up with our own terms, he can't be the right Savior. And some of us are like the disciples. We approach Jesus and we just don't understand life. We don't know what he's up to. Maybe he gives us times of suffering, but we just want to be close to him. 
We just want us to, him to let us in on what's going on. We just want us to, him to tell us, tell us what he's up to. We all have expectations. And not all these are bad, but we have to be honest that just like the characters in this story, these expectations end up giving us lenses through which we view Jesus. So what happens? Where does Jesus go? And what happens with all these expectations all these characters have? Uh, we'll look on, move on to this next point of disappointment. I think if we look at this in all of these parties, it is abundantly clear that Jesus did not come to meet any of these parties' expectations. Let's look at the crowd first. You know, here we, in a way, it seems like in the, in, in the immediate reading, in the immediate context, that the crowd is getting what they want. They think that the type of Savior they're anticipating has come. But if we are to read further, then we look down here in verse 34, if you have your Bible, Jesus starts saying some funny things. You know, he sits on the donkey, he confirms he's the Messiah, but then he starts saying this stuff like it's his purpose that he has to be lifted up and taken away. And the crowd in verse 34 very interestingly says, wait a second. You know, we have heard in the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? So you kind of see it's like air being let out of a balloon. You know, they, they're receiving Jesus as their king, and they're excited about what he is up to. But then as soon as he starts explaining what he's really about, that he has to be lifted up and taken away in order to bring healing for the people, then they say, time out. You know, this is like, ooh, this is not what I wanted. You know, we wanted somebody who was going to be here forever. We wanted somebody who was going to change the oppression that we're under. We want somebody who is going to change our circumstances. And as soon as Jesus didn't meet that mold, we read on that it says they did not believe in him. And they actually turned on him like the Pharisees. Same thing happens with the Pharisees. The Pharisees end up disappointed. They don't get the Messiah they want and they're so angry that Jesus would challenge their own authority that they're led to actually want to kill him and get rid of him. And the same thing happens with the disciples over and over and over again as the disciples grapple with who Jesus is and the mystery that surrounds him, they waffle. They have good times of faith and they have low times. In this book, if we are to read on, then Peter actually ends up in his confusion of what Jesus is up to that he denies Jesus three times. I I wonder if we relate to this. Do you know what it's like to be disappointed by God? You know what it's like to have expectations for how life should be, how God should act in our lives, only to find out that that's not the case and be led to a place of disappointment? I mean, when we suffer and when things are really, really difficult and all we can think about is that suffering going away and it doesn't happen, that's very disappointing. And it can be disorienting for us that who is Jesus and what is he really about? You know, when we, in marriage, if you pour time and time and time again to try to make your marriage work and selflessly serve this other person and then just nothing changes, it's really disappointed. And we say, where is God? Who is he? And what, he is, all, what is he all about? You know, when we, our family relationships fall apart, you know, with kids, they don't turn out how we think they should. And kids, when your parents don't raise you the way that, you know, you think that they should, it's disappointing. 
that same struggle with sin over and over and over again. You say, God, I want this to go away. I want to change. And then you do it again. It's very disappointing. Just like these people. And it leads us to this place of who is God? And what is, he, what is He really here to do? How does He help? How does this help me in any way? And this often comes out, even if not explicitly, it comes out in anger and frustration. It can come out as numbing, finding things to do to distract ourselves just so that we don't think about it. It can even come out as hypervigilance as we try to make up for where we think God is lacking in our lives. I think most of us, if we live long enough, we have the same experience of being disappointed with God. What does God do? What does God do in the face of all of these people as Jesus rides into this place with all kinds of people who have different expectations and many of them are disappointed in Him, who He is and what He is up to? What does He do? And this is this. And it's just a really simple thing, it seems like. In verse 14, it says, And Jesus found a young donkey, and He sat on it, just as it is written. And then we go on to John, the writer, quotes, looking at it from, in hindsight, that this was a reference to a passage in Zechariah 9.9, which was predicting that a Messiah would come. That this is, there would be a Savior that would come, that who would be, who would bring universal peace at the mighty arm and actions of God. He would use him in order to bring, um, to bring down Israel's enemies and to make everything right again. This is a great hope. So when, Israel, when Jesus is sitting on this donkey, he knows, and only he knows at this point, that he is accepting the role that he came to do. But there's a twist. It's not what everybody expected him to do. He is at this point, I'm going to get, just get the grasp of this in the story, with all of this excitement, fur expectation going on around him, only one person himself, he knows what he's doing. He knows that sitting on this donkey and accepting this role is accepting that he would lay down his life for all of these people who don't understand what he's up to. And he does it. He gets this donkey, he sits on it, and he rides into Jerusalem, and the people, they crown him as king. It basically is a ceremony as when we see the whole story of Jesus accepting his role to lay down his life for the people. This is the third point, resolution, which is kind of a play on words, if you'll see, that it illustrates Jesus is resolute in his duty. He accepts the role what God has sent him, and he doesn't waver. No matter what it costs him, he continues this march, this quiet march towards his purpose of laying down his life. But what he does in laying down his life is he brings a kind of peace that nobody expected, that nobody saw coming, most didn't even know that they needed. And that when he lays down his life, being God himself in the flesh, he takes on the sins of the people, so that the people, as disoriented and disappointed and confused with him as they are, alienated from God, could then be at peace with God. That Jesus would take the death deserved for everybody else on himself so that God's wrath would be poured out on him so that the life that he brings could be given to even these people. He brings resolution. 
He brings resolution with God, that there can be peace for sinners with God. What does that mean for us? If Jesus brings resolution for us, that means that even as we struggle in disappointment, even as we struggle in not fully understanding always what God is up to, even as we waffle with the disciples, if you belong to Jesus, your future has already been resolved. It is not in doubt. It doesn't depend on how good your day is going. It doesn't depend on how good your week's going. Remember Peter. It's even led to the point of denying Jesus. I mean, complete and utter bombing out. Peter, belonging to Christ, his future was resolved with God. It is not in doubt. That means as you, if you belong to Jesus, you can look at your circumstances, not through how well you're doing, not through your own resolve to follow Jesus faithfully, but we can look to Jesus and His resolve to finish God's work, which He did. Jesus' future, peace with God has been resolved, and so has everybody who belongs to Him. Jesus brought resolution. But we're kind of left with this question here at the end. That's the three stages of the journey. We saw expectation, disappointment, and resolution. But if Jesus has resolved his people's future, what do we do with our disappointment? How do we live in light of that? How is that not just some faraway reality of what Jesus does at the end of our lives? How does it matter to us? And I think it is this, the last point, which is power. And Jesus marched to Jerusalem on this donkey. It was a march of him doing what we could not do. But it was also a march that sets the pattern of the way, as it illustrates the way that he brought about redemption. It also illustrates a new pattern for the Christian life. And it is not one where he removes all circumstances that are bad. It is not one where he, he gives us exactly what we want in any way. But this is a pattern where death, as Christ's death resulted in glorification, in glory, is the same way for his people. There's this new pattern of the Christian life for those who are attached to Jesus and are united with him. It is the exact same pathway. Rather than getting away from the things that weigh us down, what Jesus did is he took all of those things, even accepting the furthest extent of death, And through death, he ended up bringing life. And it is in this whole story, even for his people, that the power of Jesus is that even in the midst of suffering, that Jesus brings life for those that are attached to him. That the sufferings that we face every day are not just sufferings that are leading to death. They are sufferings that are actually being used by Jesus, mysterious as that may be. To bring about life. And I'll give you this, leave you with this illustration. Um, my wife is really interested in childbirth, and I know that others in this room are as well. Uh, I've learned way more about childbirth than I ever wanted to know, but one thing that has stuck out to me, as she said many times, is that in any other circumstance in life, if you're going through childbirth with that amount of pain, you should be dying. Like, there's no reason otherwise to go through that much pain and it be a good thing, except with childbirth. But with childbirth, it's a very different scenario. 
tremendous amount of pain that I don't know from experience, I have only heard, but even the pain is actually doing something and it is contributing to bringing forth life. You see the pattern? What Jesus did is he accepted suffering and through the suffering, he ended up laying down his life and bringing life. And for all those who are united to Jesus, the power is that he takes suffering that would lead to death and transforms it into childbirth. That it is suffering that actually brings about life through the Holy Spirit. And if that is the case, that gives us a radically new thing to hope for. Rather than always escaping from where we are, that we have the hope that even in what we experience, that Jesus is there, he is up to something, he is bringing life for his people. So we don't always have to get out. And it's even further than that. If we look at the people of God throughout history, and as they have grappled with this, if they have engaged with this path and this work of redemption that he has worked, many have often actually invited more discomfort and suffering in their own lives than they had to by taking on the burdens of others, by leaving comforts in order that others might see the exact same path and picture of salvation that we're given in Jesus. The power of Jesus is that whatever we face is transformed from death into something that brings life. And that is something that we can hope in, that is something that can challenge us, and that is something that gives us new lenses that whatever we face in our lives, how we can view them. We can view them through this Jesus who sat on this donkey and who marched all the way to death. And through death, he brought about life. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this good news and thank you for this work of Jesus that we could not do for ourselves. Thank you for his resolution that where we waffle every day, he was resolute and he gave us peace with God. I pray that through your spirit, you would take what you have put in your word and these stories and events that you you have given us that you would work in our hearts that we would look to you and we would trust you. That whatever it is, however painful and confusing it may be, that you would turn our eyes towards Jesus and we would hope in what you are doing for us right now and the glory that you are working out in us. We lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen.